Hey, welcome Life Church family. It's always a great day to be together and it is a really great day when we get to celebrate child dedications. I'm especially grateful today that Amber and I are dedicating our little baby Sophia, who we love so much. And uh, it's a beautiful day when parents get to dedicate their children to the Lord. Now, speaking of children, today we're starting a new series, and that series is called Why God? This is something parents find themselves saying a lot, but it's not just about parenting. In fact, this series really isn't about parenting at all. It's a question that all of us have, deep down somewhere, if we're honest, especially in the midst of difficult situations. Sometimes we just have the question existentially as a whole. Throughout this series, we're going to be looking at four different people who ask a variation on this question. And we're gonna see how God met these people, answered these people, and transformed them. And my prayer is in this series, God transforms me, and God transforms you, as we see how he transformed them. Just after this series, we're gonna be running in our Team World Vision 6K. Yeah, who's excited? 6K! Now, uh, some of you are not excited because you're like, only lunatics get excited about running. That's for crazy people. And you're right. People who are really into running have a little bit of crazy in them. But whether you're a runner or not, I just want to shout out the simple fact of running and raising money for clean water makes a huge, huge, huge difference. For many regions of the world, access to clean water um, is not a reality, and it keeps those places stuck in a survival culture instead of developing as a country. But this clean water crisis is solvable in our lifetime, and we're doing something about it. Through our denomination, we specifically give money to building clean water wells in the Congo. Now, I've run three half marathons and many 6Ks with Team World Vision, I remember getting roped into the first one against my will. So I'm leading worship at Life Canton, just helping out. And service goes great and it ends. And um, I'm packing my stuff up, talking to people I hadn't seen there in a long time because I had planted Livonia already. And as we're there, I just cannot find Amber anywhere. So I look for in the lobby and I look for the cafe and I look for back in the kids area. And I'm like, dang, where is my wife? And so as I'm heading out the door uh, through the auditorium to go back to the parking lot and see if she's there, I catch her eye as she's sitting in the informational meeting. You see, that Sunday happened to be the day that Team World Vision had done their big push, and just like we did a couple weeks ago, there was an info meeting for anyone interested in running the marathon or half in the fall. And I catch Amber's eye as she's sitting in that info meeting. And she's got a glint in her eye, and she starts to smile and kind of chuckle a little bit as we catch eyes. And I know what's happening. I know she's signing up for this thing. I know she's going to try to make me run it with her. And I do not want to at all. So I just start shaking my head from a distance. We're probably like 150 feet apart. And I'm just mouthing, no, 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 no. <laughs> but long story short, I caved under the won't you support your wife argument, which is a strong argument in our household. So we start running together. We start training together. And it's miserable. I hated it. <laughs> Every single time we went out for a run, I thought, this is just a matter of discipline. I hate this. I'm doing this for my wife. I hate this. This is just a matter of discipline. I hate this. And so a couple months pass, we're on vacation with my family, and my dad, who is an avid runner, wants to do one of our training runs with us. So we say, okay, and we go out for a run. And as we're running together, he kind of just starts to notice some things and says, hey, would you mind if I gave you some pointers? And I'm like, pointers? about running? I mean, how hard is it? You put one foot in front of the other, you know what I mean? I don't think that you need to take a class on running. But I said, sure, why not? 
And as he started to give me these pointers, a lot of the things that were making it so difficult began to resolve themselves. You see, I was having a lot of pain in my shins. I was having pain in my right knee as we were running. I was constantly out of breath, and I just felt like I was going to die the whole time. But as he taught me some breathing techniques, as he taught me a little bit about heel striking and toe striking, as he changed my form and where my shoulders were, just these little tweaks to correct my posture, all of a sudden it became so much easier. And whereas I don't love running now, I don't hate it anymore either. And one of the things I learned from that experience is good form and correct posture keep the pain you experience while running the pain of growth instead of the bad pain of just getting injured. Good posture equals good pain. Bad posture equals bad pain. And pain is inescapable, whether you're a runner or not, whether you're a good person or not, whether you try to live well or not, whether you follow Jesus or not. Following Jesus doesn't prevent all suffering. Trying to do the right thing doesn't prevent all suffering. In fact, Jesus promises as Christians that we're going to endure suffering and opposition in the world because we follow him. Obedience to God certainly bypasses the consequence of many sins, and that saves us a lot of grief. But if we're a follower of Jesus, you're going to suffer. And if you're not, you're going to suffer. And if you're here and you're not following Jesus, maybe one of the reasons is because you've suffered and you just can't reconcile your hard life experiences with a loving God. Now, we ask that question, why God, about many things. But as I was preparing for this series, I reflected on the fact that there's a particular kind of why God that comes out in the midst of great pain. This kind of why comes out when we lose someone close to us. It comes out when we lose our job or career. It comes out when we lose our marriage or relationship with our kids. It comes out when we feel like we've lost our purpose or our usefulness or the capabilities we had and freedom we had when we were younger. It comes out when we're struggling with doubts and feel like we might be losing our faith. This why comes out in any situation where we lose something that is a part of the fabric of our life and our future has to radically change. However, these moments of pain and loss, they're not hopeless. They're just a crisis. And what, by crisis, what I mean is simply this. I don't mean tragedy. I mean a, it's a turning point when an important change takes place, indicating either recovery or destruction. You see, just like with running, the posture and form we take in the midst of a crisis can, make, can turn these experiences into a pain that transforms us. Or if we have a bad posture, it can just become something that injures us further and hurts us deeper. And my hope for you, and I believe God's will for you, is that these moments of pain and crisis would transform you, not just hurt. So the question that we're beginning this series with is, what's the right posture for our why? What's the right posture for our why? Well, to answer this question, we're going to look at the life of a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob is a twin, and he was born a few minutes after his brother Esau. And his family has literally never let him forget it. His family dynamics are, how would you say, not awesome. <laughs> you know, Many of us can relate to that. But part of why being the younger twin is such a big deal for Jacob is because in the culture Jacob grew up in, the oldest son got the majority of the inheritance and the younger children had to split up the rest. So in this case, Esau, his older brother, is going to get probably two-thirds of the inheritance and Jacob will probably 
only get one third. Now, I'm sure this could be handled in a way that's amicable and that's favorable and kind of not be a huge deal, but in Jacob's family, that wasn't the case. You see, his parents played favorites. He was his mom's favorite, and his brother Esau was his dad's favorite. Esau was a man's man, you know what I mean? He lived outdoors, he loved to hunt, he smells like the rain, and he's so hairy he gets mistaken for a goat later in the story, which is a whole thing in itself. Jacob, on the other hand, not quite as traditionally masculine. Uh, he's described as quiet compared to Esau. He's not hairy, he has smooth skin. He doesn't hunt, instead he cooks. He's more meek, more mild, he's more mental, less physical and has more some of the traditional feminine characteristics that you would see in, in contrast to his hyper-masculine brother. So Jacob and Esau are constantly at odds with each other. Jacob decides he's not going to be number two forever though. And so he begins to work to craftily rob his brother of both the birthright for the inheritance and the firstborn blessing that's traditionally handed down. And what's more, his mom teams up with Jacob to cheat his brother out of these things. Talk about some broken family dynamics, you know what I'm saying? When Esau realizes that Jacob had tricked his aging and blind father into giving his birthright and blessing to Jacob instead of Esau, Esau is furious. I mean, not only did he get stolen from, but Jacob took advantage of their own father's medical frailty. How sick is that? And Esau is so furious, he's going to kill Jacob over this. Now, it's interesting to note, just kind of as an aside, the only way Jacob is able to get his father's blessing and approval is by pretending to be his brother. I wonder what the subconscious is saying there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, Esau decides he's going to kill his brother Jacob for this. And Jacob doesn't want to die, go figure. So he decides he's going to run away and go live with his mother's brother, his uncle Laban. For 21 years... Laban cheats Jacob, and Jacob cheats Laban back, just like Jacob cheated Esau. Talk about family of origin issues. It came from somewhere. But in the midst of it, Jacob ends up marrying two women and begins having children, and God shows him favor, and he prospers. And over that time, as Jacob's with Laban, uh, they cheat each other so much their relationship erodes, as you would expect, just like Jacob and Esau's relationship had eroded. And it reaches a point where Jacob decides it's time for them to part ways. So he makes kind of a mad dash in the dark of night, and uh, Laban catches up to him, they have an argument, and then they end up parting ways. But as Jacob is heading away, he finds himself heading home. Where else would he go? And as he's heading home, he realizes he's going to have to face his brother. And this terrifies Jacob. He remembers his last interaction with his brother was a steal-and-run situation that ended in a vowing of a death sentence, right? Not a great way to part ways. So Jacob hatches another crafty plan. He decides he's going to send gifts ahead of him so that the gifts meet Esau before he does, so that Esau keeps getting free stuff for like four days before Jacob finally shows up, you know, hoping to kind of ease the blow a little bit. But finally, tomorrow's the day. It's the day that Jacob and Esau see each other for the first time in over two decades. It's the day that Jacob has to apologize. It's the day that Jacob faces the fact that he just wasn't there. That he wasn't there for the birth of Esau's kids. That he wasn't there for the death of his own parents. That he wasn't there for anything because of his own sinfulness. It's the day that Jacob faces his regrets 
and faces his greatest fears. It's the day that Jacob faces his past. And we find him the night before this fateful day here in this scripture in Genesis 32. And it reads this. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which is a river. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. The man said, let go of me for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. Funny that they just had this whole wrestling match and he doesn't even think to ask, like, who are you? He just starts, like, biting the guy. It's funny. Anyway, so Jacob, <laughs> but he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. So there are four things we got to talk about in this scripture. The first is the wrestling, the second is the limp, the third is the new name that Jacob is given, and the fourth is this blessing. So we're going to start by talking about this wrestling match. So here we find Jacob the night before this fateful day, a day that could end in reconciliation or death and destruction. And he finds himself alone, unable to sleep, and wrestling with God. How relatable is that? I know I've been there, and I wonder if you have too. You know, you're filled with anxiety at facing a person who's hurt you, and you're wondering what's going to happen the next day. Maybe you're unable to sleep because of an important conversation that you have to have with somebody, and it's coming up the next day, and you just keep thinking through it, but you just can't control all the variables, and you're just hoping it doesn't go south. Maybe you are facing something from your past, and you're asking God, God, why? What's going on here? Where are you in this situation? God, why did this thing happen? Why did life have to go this way? Why did you allow me to do that or happen to me? Why weren't things different? Why wasn't I better? Why is life so hard? Why, 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 why? And so here we find Jacob alone and sleepless in a why God moment of his own. Now, he doesn't literally say the words, why God? But it's this kind of moment when we often do. And this isn't the last moment like this Jacob will ever have. You see, later in life, he's going to have to contend with what he thinks is the death of his son. For many, many years, he's going to think one of his sons was killed. And then one of his daughters is going to get raped. And he's going to have to contend with that. And then there's going to be a famine that threatens to destroy his family and his whole family is going to get displaced and turn into immigrants. And he's going to have to contend with that. But this is the first of many difficult moments where Jacob will do some form of wrestling with God. But this moment is a special one because this is a crisis moment, a turning point moment. 
I talked at the, at the beginning of the sermon about running. And the reason I wanted to use the analogy of running is because Jacob has spent his whole life running. He ran from being the second son. He ran from his brother. He ran from his parents. He ran from his uncle. He ran from his responsibilities. He ran from his choices. He ran from his past. He ran from his home. But this night, this night that he wrestles with God, he stops running. And instead, he decides to wrestle. And in this moment, Jacob chooses to wrestle, not run. And as his posture changes, this posture of wrestling instead of running changes towards his family, his past, his choices, his life, and God. As he changes his posture, something amazing happens. And what makes the change happen isn't Jacob's effort, it's the posture. Because how many of us know running from things often takes just as much, if not more, effort than facing them? Because if we just compare and contrast running and wrestling, if I'm running from you, I'm moving away from you, not towards you. I'm turning my back to you, not my face to you. I'm trying to hide from you, not be vulnerable with you. I'm unable to see you clearly. I'm unable to hear you well. And I'm actively trying to disengage with you. But if we contrast that to if we choose to wrestle instead, we end up moving towards each other, not away. Instead of turning our backs, we are face to face. We're up close and personal. We're not distant. We're not hiding anything, but we are bringing our full selves. We're able to see each other. We're able to hear each other. We're actively engaged, not disengaged. In his book, Disappointment with God, Three Questions No One Asks Out Loud, author Philip Yancey reflects on both Jacob and Job as he evaluates the way that they deal with their why God moments versus the way that he has dealt with his why God moments. And he says this, One bold message in the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. Throw at him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment. He can absorb them all. As often as not, spiritual giants of the Bible are shown contending with God. They prefer to go away limping like Jacob rather than to shut God out. In this respect, the Bible prefigures a tenet of modern psychology. You can't really deny your feelings or make them disappear, so you might as well express them. God can deal with every human response save one. He cannot abide the response I fall back on instinctively and attempt to ignore him or treat him as though he does not exist. In other words, to run away. When we choose to run, we choose to miss God's answers. We choose to miss God's blessings. We choose to miss God's voice and we choose to miss God's presence. We choose to remain stuck in our grief, stuck in our pain, stuck in our fear and stuck in our lives. But when we choose to wrestle, we choose to get up close and personal, throwing our full weight against the God of the universe, trusting that he's big enough and strong enough to handle it. The choice to wrestle is the choice to not let go of God in the confusion, in the frustration, in the pain, in the grief, until the why blesses us and leaves us transformed. So now that, that leads me into wanting to talk about this limp because that's part of what happens in this wrestling match. So Jacob wrestles with God and verse 25 says this, the man being God saw that he could not overpower him. 
Wow, that's a big statement, right? I mean, what does that mean that God can't overpower Jacob? Well, I think it means this. There's not things that God can't do. There are things he won't do. There are things that are against his nature that he quote-unquote can't do. Like he can't be evil, for example. But I, I think this is what this means. If we don't want to move with God, he won't make us. He won't make us follow him. He won't make us submit to him. He won't make us love him. He's not going to force Jacob to change. He's not going to force Jacob to live differently. He's not going to force Jacob to surrender. Jacob has to do that himself. And then you might think, well, wait a second. I mean, you say he is not going to force him to submit. The guy makes him crippled. Like, how is that not forcing him to submit? And I just want to point out, this is what the scripture says. In verse 25, when the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go. So despite his hip being wounded and him now being crippled, Jacob does not submit. Even that does not make Jacob submit. And I would argue that this limp is part of the blessing. Because I think the reason God gave him this limp was not to make him crippled. It was to make him walk. Because now that Jacob has a limp, he can't run anymore which is what he's been doing his whole life. The limp is both literal and symbolic. Literally, he can't run. He has to walk everywhere he goes. And symbolically, he is not able to go back to the kind of person he was before this wrestling match. The kind of person who ran away instead of dealt with things face to face. But the limp isn't the only thing God gives Jacob. He also gives him this name. You see, Jacob's name literally means cheat or liar. It's literally translated grabber of the heel, which means like I'm trying to get something from you. I'm trying to pull you back and pull me up. And that's been Jacob's whole life. It's not just what people call him. It's a description of his character. And many times in the Bible, God gives people a new name to signify new character, new calling. We see this with Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel or Saul to Paul. The name Israel that gets given to Jacob in this match means to wrestle with God and it also means to triumph with God. God is telling Jacob in this naming, you are no longer a cheat and you are no longer a liar. You are one who struggles with and triumphs with me. That's who you are. You're no longer this old person. And then God calls his chosen people, the Israelites, by Jacob's name. Because God wants all of his people to be like Jacob. People who struggle with and triumph with God. Lastly, let's talk about the blessing. Because Jacob refuses to let go of God until he receives this blessing, he receives both a new pace and a new name. And those were the blessings. I think the Lord also gave him just a verbal blessing, but I think those are the the substance of them because they changed his life forever. Not only that, but they were the seed that God's chosen people grew from. And it is God's chosen people that Jesus came from to save and redeem the world. In his book, Reading While Black, Esau Macaulay wrestles with the scriptures that were historically used by white Americans to justify the enslavement of black people. And as he begins his book, he is wrestling with how these were misinterpreted and misapplied. And he begins talking about all the complexities on his mind, both socially and biblically. And instead of ignoring the problems these scriptures have created and present, 
Instead, he says this about his journey to try to interpret them in a way he thinks is more in alignment with God's heart and truth. He says this, I propose instead that we adopt the posture of Jacob and refuse to let go of the text until it blesses us. We adopt a hermeneutic, meaning method of interpretation, of trust in which we are patient in the belief that when interpreted properly, it, the Bible, will bring a blessing and not a curse. After Jacob changes his posture from running to wrestling, he, indu- he indeed meets Esau, and they reconcile. God does a beautiful thing as he binds these two brothers together who were once so far apart. God had caused both to flourish despite the wounds they'd given each other, despite the wounds they'd received, and despite the up and downs of life. When we choose to wrestle and not run, we open the door to transformation, we open the door to renaming, we open the door to a blessing from God. When we choose to wrestle, we're choosing to patiently trust, like Esau Macaulay just said. We're trusting that this struggle that we're in right now will end in a blessing and not in a curse. When we choose to run, however, we not only count ourselves out of an answer, but we count ourselves out of any blessing that might come from it as well. So what about you? Where are you at today? Where in your life are you struggling and asking God, why? Why is this so hard? What is going on? Why would, is, am I experiencing this? What's, where, where in your life is that happening? And my encouragement to you is wherever that is, choose to wrestle and not run. And so you may be like, hey, great, I get the analogy, makes sense, I, but what does that practically mean? I get it, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to wrestle with God. Tell me how. And I just want to give you three quick things as we end here. Thing number one, if we're going to wrestle with God, we've got to make time to speak, meaning we have to be honest with God. Don't be silent in, our, in your emotions. Whether you're angry or sad or hurt or distrusting, tell that to God. This can be through talking out loud. This can be an inner heart prayer. This can be through journaling. This can be through art. This can just be on a long walk. But be honest with God about what's inside you. Second, make time not just to speak, but to listen. And this happens through prayer in Scripture. God speaks by His Holy Spirit through prayer and by His Spirit through His Word. And if you're trying to hear from God and you're not praying and reading your Bible, you're not going to hear Him very well. I'm just going to let you know right now. But if you're setting aside time to read God's Word and to pray, just simply ask the Lord to make it clear. That way you can understand. And I ask the Lord all the time, like, Lord, I pray you just show me this in a way I understand. I'm just so fuzzy right now. I I don't know what's happening. Please just show me in a way I'll understand. And then I read God's Word. And finally, when you're wrestling, don't go it alone. You need Christian community and you need mentorship. There are people who have wrestled the same kinds of issues you're wrestling, and they've come out on the other side, more whole and full than before. And you need them in your life to guide you. We discern everything in the Christian life through prayer, through scripture, through the community of the church, and through our circumstances. As you're discerning what to do next and how to wrestle with God in this thing, don't just pick one of those. Embrace all four. And finally, some of us here are not followers of Jesus. We don't believe in God at all, and we're just here kind of checking things out. And if that's you, maybe you've been running from God for a while because you had a bad church experience as a kid. Maybe you've got a deep wound. 
maybe from your family, maybe from the church, maybe from someone else. Maybe you've had bad answers to your good questions. But wherever that is, I want you to know, you don't have to stay there. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to forgive you of the ways you're not just wounded, you've wounded other people. And you've wounded the fabric of the world that God made through sin. And on the cross, Jesus forgives that. And when he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead to offer you life and life to the fullest. And he wants to give you a blessed and transformed life. A life of richness and goodness. A life and life to the full. And if you feel yourself being pulled toward that, even in the midst of your doubt, you don't have to have everything figured out. Jacob certainly didn't. I certainly don't. But I do know God, and I do know He loves me, and I do know if I patiently trust in Him, things will end in a blessing, not a curse. And if that's you, I just want to invite you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you forgive my sins, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you uh, show me that I can trust you with the full weight of my grief, my doubt, my anger, myself. Lord, I, I'm willing to do things your way. And I pray you'd show me what to do next. Lord, I want to know you if you're there. And I want to live this life to the full I'm hearing about. Show me how to do that. By your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. If you just prayed with us, please, please, please fill out that digital connection card or comment in the comment section so that we can walk alongside you.